The following message is from the 2018 IBCD Summer Institute, Loving Wayward Souls. Lord, thank you so much for these sessions that we've had together. Thank you for just the grace to talk to you. Thanks for hearing us. And I thank you that uh, you're, you hear me in English. And thank you for all the languages you speak and understand. And thank you for your kindness. And we ask now that you continue to enable us to, to see something about who you are and to be drawn to you, Lord. We ask that in your name. Amen. So, uh, as, as we've talked about the, the presence that uh, a sage teaches us in Christ and the kind of listening talk that we offer, we've, we've thought about how we're looking at each individual person who's in front of us as a human being. Um, and we're thinking about the posture of soul that they're bringing to us with the thing we're talking about, whether they're wounded or they're simplistic or they're foolish or they're a scoffer, and how the grace of God's wisdom uh, is meant to come uh, to the soul of a human being there. And we talked about how um, that means that the voice of a prophet has its place, and we've upheld that place. But it also means that uh, the voice of the sage needs more um, room in our lives. And we've looked at our Lord Jesus and how uh, the role of indirect speech to bring consolation to the wounded and um, uh, invitation to the simple and confrontation to the fool and excommunication or the threat of it, boundary setting to uh, the scoffer. And we've given some thought to that. And uh, so now we want to sort of bring some of that stuff to some practical conclusion uh, for our time today. So I feel the need to pray again, but I think it's because it's the afternoon. <laughs> and that summary, uh, we've just covered a lot of deep ground, and we need like another year and a half together. So let's start here. The hint that we're getting all along here is that the sage does not trust quick fixes, trite solutions. Uh, the sage doesn't trust that as a remedy. The simpleton does. The sage doesn't. Uh, and one, one way to highlight that for us is to remind us about something of, about the Proverbs. So for example, the Proverbs are like the rules. They basically tell you, uh, do good and good will happen. Do bad, bad will happen. Right? And so then you get folks like Job's friends uh, or the Pharisees in the New Testament. And they take those Proverbs, wonderfully so, and they try to apply them to life. So if you're Job's friends, you're just following the Bible. This guy, his whole life's fallen apart. He must have sinned. The Proverbs tell us that. If, if something bad happened to someone, it's because they did something wrong. And so they're applying a proverb without 
uh, asking questions of season without knowing about a whole supernatural conversation that's going on, <laughs> with, right? And so what you have is God gives us Job and Ecclesiastes, and they're the exceptions to the rule. So uh, when I learned English, uh, I learned that um, I, I came before E. I before E, except after C, and sometimes Y, and something about neighbor and way. <laughs> neighbor and something. Sounds like A and neighbor and something. And way. Okay. E-I-G-H. Right. And you know, uh, if you're learning a language, uh, you start to feel good. You've worked hard. You're getting the rules. And then all of a sudden, the teacher says, okay, today we're going to talk about all the exceptions to the rules. And you get frustrated and discouraged. And if you quit right then, you won't learn the language. You have to engage and surrender to the exceptions in order to be able to have facility with the language. In the same way, a simpleton and a fool do not like learning the exceptions. So I see that in my own heart. <laughs> okay, I am simplistic and foolish. There it is, <laughs> you know, because I, I don't want the exceptions. I, I just want to be able to give you a verse, and that's enough. But it isn't that simple. It isn't less than that. It's just a whole lot more. And so uh, we know that uh, Job is an example of a righteous man who has not sinned against God, has not earned or deserved all this stuff taking place. And we learn that God defends him. By the end, all the stuff that Job's friends have to say is rebuked by the Lord. All the stuff Job said is defended by the Lord. And we're like, whoa, that's an exception. That's really different than what we see here. It's not that the Proverbs are that, that formulaic. After all, they will say back to back, um, how's it go? Uh, correct, uh, what is it? Correct a fool, answer lest he think he's... Yes. Answer a fool according to his folly. Don't answer a fool according... So the Proverbs themselves have these categories of you have to have prudence about how you apply them. But uh, then you come to Ecclesiastes, and it just tells you plainly, meaningless. <laughs> right? I hate life. Um, and then it'll just tell you, I have seen vanity under the sun. I've seen a good man die in his righteousness, and a bad man live in his unrighteousness. Oh, that must be, oh, how we hold that together. And that's the thing. The wise hold all this together. It's not less than this. It's just more. And so we have to surrender to the complexity of life under the sun. And that slows everything down. And that's why indirect speech 
uh, and the, is a part of our Lord. That's why He doesn't just always give answers. It's why He leaves things unexplained. Uh, it's why He's willing to draw out a heart so that we have to put things in our own words. We have to grapple with something. He's willing for us to get something wrong. He's, he's able. He's a, he has a category for us to get it wrong. So we'll just think about that one for a while. Think of uh, how often the disciples got stuff wrong. They had three years, three plus years. And then they still had stuff to work on. I'm 49, and there's stuff I'm just realizing this year. The Lord's known that all along. S those closest to me have known. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm just now being clued in. And yet, I want to look at my 23-year-old, my 21-year-old, and my 14-year-old and assume they should already know what it took me 49 years to begin to grasp. Can I get a witness? Yes. Yeah. So, <laughs> we slow down. We're realizing there's no formula. Uh, there are norms, and those are solid. But the norms come into context. And we have, to, we have to pay attention and be slow to speak, slow to vent, quick to listen, so that we can discern who's in front of us and we can discern what's going on in our own heart. So how can we practically, you know, try to help ourselves think about it, about th this stuff? And um, so I've, to answer that question, I've turned to Luke chapter 11, Verses 9 through 13. Luke chapter 11, 9 through 13. And this is where our Lord Jesus is telling us about ask, seek, and knock. The prophet doesn't say that to you. Hey, bring me your questions. Hey, uh, uncover your motivations with me, your desires, the stuff you're seeking. Hey, just tell me all your frustrations, those closed doors that you wish were open. Uh, the prophet says, woe to you. The prophet says, you've been wrong, you've been wrong, you've been wrong. God has this against you, God has that against you, God has that against you, repent. Remember, the prophet is talking to people who know better. The prophet isn't going out. The prophet's not going out on a college campus and yelling at other than Christian people that they're going to hell. It's more scary than that. The prophets in the Old Testament and New almost always, almost always, are speaking to you and me. They're speaking to Bible-believing people, people who go to church, people who claim to be part of the people of God. Remember, the Apostle Paul said in the Corinthian letter there, what is that? I'll just say it, maybe someone will remember. <laughs> Paul said, I wrote to you not to associate with sexually immoral people, 
not at all meaning the people of this world. For then you'd have to go out of the world. Who am I to judge those people? God will judge them. I'm writing to you about the, sec the one who's a brother. So we get that backwards a lot. That's a side note. We get that backwards a lot. So when our Lord says to the crowds, you know, be asking, be seeking, be knocking, that's a slow process. So the first thing he invites you to is to ask. For, for some of us, <laughs> that will be a big task. First, to even know enough of what's going on inside of us, what we would ask. If our Lord Jesus were to come to you the way he did Bartimaeus or James and John and say, what would you like me to do for you? What would you say? What would you ask? So, be asking. These are the, the things you're wondering about in your life, the things you're uh, questioning, you, you wish you had, or you're wanting to know about. And so let's think about how the wounded soul asks questions. The wounded soul asks about pain. It sounds like this, how long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Psalm 13, 1 through 4. My eyes long for your promise. When will you comfort me? How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? Why have you forsaken me? Our Lord Jesus takes up that cry, doesn't he? Why have you forsaken me? And when he does, he's not only propitiating uh, and, uh, God, he's also taking up the cry of the victim. There is no other religion in the world in which the central moment of that religion is God saying, why has God forsaken me? He takes up the most ancient question that humanity has. If God is good, why is there suffering? Right there on the cross, Jesus asks the question, why aren't you stopping this? Where are you? So the question of the wounded soul is about pain. Now, some of us leaning toward Job's friends want to stop that kind of question. If we're simplistic, we don't want to go there. If we're foolish, we want to correct it. Have faith. But I just read two Psalms for you, and the fact is, if you just go search like ESV online or something, actually, what was this? All the questions in the Bible, search that. All the questions in the Bible, somebody put that together. It's in the King James. But it has every question listed in the Bible. 
and just read how many questions Job and his friends ask and how many of them are about pain. And read the Psalms. How many questions are asked about pain? Remember, to ask questions is something the Lord Jesus has commanded. Ask. Bring it. And the wounded soul is going to necessarily bring questions about their suffering and their sorrow and their pain. And we get with the wisdom of grace to receive it and enter that rather than feeling like we have to correct it. Uh, maybe I can say it this way um, to hopefully make sense of it. When, uh, when you're a, a person like myself, well, you're, you're a minister, and you're coming into an emergency room, and some of you might really resonate with this pain, so... You're coming into an emergency room and the, the mother and the father are, are holding their child that has died. You don't know what will come out of that mom and dad's mouth. After the shock, during the shock, what they will say. And the thing is, that is not the moment to correct someone's theology. That might be Job's laments. That might be a psalmist's lament. That might be Jesus, why have you forsaken me? That might be all of that. Three years later, if someone's stuck there, maybe. Maybe that's the time to start inviting. But sometimes we want the fool and the simpleton wants to correct in order to control. The truth is we're uncomfortable with how unmanageable this is. We don't know what to make of it, so we want to reduce it. The wounded soul asks about pain. The simplistic soul asks about immediate gratification, pleasures. Uh, Psalm 4, 6. Who will show us some good? Uh, who can make me happy? That's what that's about. Uh, Psalm 78. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God saying, can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. But can he also give us bread to provide meat for his people? Yeah, okay. <laughs> God just gave us water from a rock. Sure. But can he give us meat? That's the simpleton. So fixed on immediate wants. What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? Matthew 6, 31, the Lord Jesus is engaging those questions. Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Matthew 19 sounds like an earnest question. But Jesus says, why do you call me good? That's direct speech. It's a question. 
The simplistic soul, that's flattery. The simplistic soul is asking about uh, my immediate gratification. The simpleton does not like discomfort and will almost do anything, rearrange anything to avoid any kind of discomfort or complexity. No exceptions to the rules. And so constantly looking for any promise, anything that will make things just feel okay. Are we good? Okay. Are we good? Are we good? Okay, we're good. That's, that's the whole commitment of the simpleton. They'll say they're sorry a thousand times. They don't want to talk about the thing. They just want, I'm sorry, move on. Or they'll never say they're sorry, but they'll do all kinds of obedient acts to show you that they're sorry and hopefully we're all good. It's to preserve the mood. So the simplistic soul is asking tangible questions about immediate gratification and pleasure. The foolish soul is asking questions out of anger and arrogance. Well, let's say it this way. The foolish soul is not asking anything. Almost. The fool doesn't ask questions. That's how you know it's a fool. This takes a while to pick up on. It's noticing what someone's not doing, what they're not doing when you're meeting with them. They're not asking me any questions. Um, the fool is always telling you. Even if they add a question mark at the end and give a lilt in their voice, they're telling you. It's uh, that you, you, maybe you've taught a Bible study or something like that, and the question starts something like, don't you think? That's not a question. The person's about ready to tell you what they think, and they think you should think that too. Uh, and so, uh, the foolish person does not ask. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, remember? Only in expressing his own opinion. If one gives an answer before he hears, it's folly and shame. Proverbs 18, 2 and 3. So you can think about yourself. A, 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 a wise person wants to learn. They will humble themselves, scratch their heads, and say, I have no idea, Jesus, what that parable meant. A, a, a wise person wants to learn. That's why they're wise. They continue to grow because they be, continue to be teachable. In our folly, we don't ask. Now, the thing that's difficult to figure out about that is in one area of our life, uh, we might be wise. Teachable, learning. In another area of our life, we're foolish. We don't, we're just telling everybody what to think. And that's why just because you're wise in one thing doesn't mean you are in everything. And then the good news is, just because you're foolish or simplistic in one area of your life doesn't mean you are in every area of your life. So the fool's not asking questions. When the fool does ask a question, it's to make a statement or to set a trap. Matthew 21, 23. They ask Jesus, by what authority do you do these things? Now, that is not a, an honest question. They're not saying, huh, we have this whole history about authority and I've been really grappling with what authority is, Jesus. Could you just tell me, like, where do you get your authority? I mean, how does this work? I mean, wow, you're like God, but God's son, and I don't get it, but you're powerful. I don't understand. Can you teach me? I'm just ready. Just teach me. <laughs> now, the Pharisees aren't doing that. By what authority? 
is an accusation. Um, and so uh, another, another uh, sound of the foolish one, and this is scary for all of us, of course. So we, we have nothing but empty hands to bring to Jesus. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not, here's the question, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name? There's no question there. That's defense. I mean, they're not waiting, you're not waiting for, they're expecting him to say, yeah. And he says, I didn't know you. Depart from me. So the foolish soul is not asking. When we locate the area in our life where we don't want to ask anything, uh, that's probably the area where we're most prone to folly and symbolism and we need the grace to, uh, to unclench our fists before the Lord. There must be something we're scared about in that area of our life. If we were to be exposed, if we were to be humbled, if we were to be something that's keeping us um, defensive rather than open in that area of our life. And the Lord Jesus will come into there. The scoffing soul um, doesn't ask questions either. They use questions to ridicule. It goes beyond the fool. The fool is defensive, angry and defensive. They can turn on you, you know, with accusation, uh, but uh, they're self-righteous about it. They think they're right. Um, the scoffer uses questions to ridicule people, and they love the hurt that it causes. And the, remember, the scoffer takes a pleasure in meanness. I'm using that phrase, the pleasure of meanness, from a short story that Flannery, Flannery O'Connor wrote called A Good Man is Hard to Find. The pleasure of meanness. So the, the scoffer asks questions like this in Psalm 12, Who is master over us? David says of them, My enemies say of me, When will he die? When will his name perish? They want David dead and to be happy with the thought. That's a mocker. Yeah? They say to him in his pain, Where is your God? Psalm 42, 10. In Psalm 59, 7, as they're going about their evil, they say, Who will hear us? In Psalm 64, 5, Who can see us? We're not, no one's judging us. There is no God. We can do what we want, and we love it. How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Psalm 73, 11. They're not asking, is there knowledge in the Most High? That's not what they're doing. Pontius Pilate, what is truth? That's not a question. Pilate wasn't like, really, Jesus, this is incredible what you're saying about the kingdom? And you just said like in a very kind, indirect way, almost in a third-person way, that anyone who's of the truth will follow you. I kind of get the feeling you're saying something to me. What is truth? That's not Pilate. Pilate's about to murder Jesus. He's a mocker. What is truth? He's not asking. If he was asking, he'd stay for the answer. Bless you. Have you ever seen that in yourself? Using questions that aren't questions? <laughs> 
So when you're listening to someone, this is how the wounded, the simplistic, the foolish, the scoffer, the wise soul is asking honest questions. Matthew 13, 10, why do you speak to them in parables, Lord? Or uh, Matthew 17, Lord, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Or uh, Matthew 17, 19, they've just been trying to cast out demons. They couldn't do it. The Lord Jesus says, boom, and they're gone. And then they just say, why could we not cast them out? This is an honest question. Those who are growing in wisdom just ask. They just really want to know. And the Lord invites these questions. Matthew 19, 25. Who then can be saved? If the rich can't enter the kingdom of heaven, who can? So you may have grown up in an environment in which you've been told. You don't ask questions, you just believe. So I invite you just to check it out in the Bible and see where the Bible teaches you that. See if you can find it. Because um, uh, the Lord Jesus is inviting us to faith. Uh, and he invites us to ask. Mm, we're, we're meant to cast our cares upon him. We're meant to, where else should we go to bring the questions we have about life? And if questions were so opposed to faith, how could someone put together a book called All the Questions of the Bible? And it's going to take you more than an hour to go through that. If you, if you just read each one and think about what's being said there, there's a, a lot of questions. Just think about the questions the Lord asks. Why do you worry? Why do you doubt? What do you want me to do for you? Why are you afraid? Just invitation of questions. So the really beautiful thing about that is we just get to bring him our questions. So when you start a day, when you start the day in the morning, you can ask the question, Lord, you can say, what, what questions are welling up within me? He invites me to bring them to him. Um, and if you're going to meet with someone, you could prepare them ahead of time. For those of you who have the beginning of this handout, you can just see that they can ask that question. What questions? What questions are going on in their being? Then he says, seek. If ask has to do with questions, seek has to do with desires. Wisdom tells us about desire, James chapter 4. Um, is that right? Where the desires uh, war within us. As you go through the scripture, uh, yeah, as you go through the scripture, um, the words are like craving, panting for, burn, thirst, hunger. It's this, uh, these dreams that we have, these, this direction that we want to go, this des these desires that we have. That's seeking. What are you seeking? That is, what are you pursuing? What are you desiring? What direction are you going in? What dream do you have that you're trying to get a hold of? We bring that to the Lord. So the wounded soul, what are their desires? The wounded soul is going to talk like this. Uh, my days are past. My plans are broken off. The desires of my heart. What he's saying is, my, my desires are shattered. Everything I want, it's gone. Right? Uh, here's what the wounded soul will say about their desire. Job 13, 3. I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to argue my case with God. 
That's Job. Do you want to correct him? I mean that sincerely. Because <laughs> that movement for us to correct him. I want to make my case with God. I want to argue my case with God is exactly the thing that Job's friends tried to correct and God himself defends in Job. That Job's not sinning when he says this. Where else, where else should, should someone go who's suffering unjustly? I want to make my case to God. Where else should they go? To whom else should they make their case? Uh, but this one who, who loves him and whom he loves. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. What does the wounded soul who's, sin, who's uh, sick in soul long for? To be fulfilled, completed. Uh, Psalm 145.19, He fulfills the desire of those who fear Him. He hears their cry and saves them. What's the desire of the wounded? To be heard and saved from it. Rescued, relieved. Psalm 10.17, O Lord, You hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline Your ear. So the wounded, they have desires about making their case with God, being heard, being strengthened, being comforted, being known. The simplistic soul, they uh, desires, has dreams about kind of what Dave's been talking about, that uh, a reward without responsibility. I'd like the resources without the relationship. I'd like the work without, I'd like the uh, reward without the work. And so the simplistic soul uh, it says this, like Proverbs 21, 25, the desire of the sluggard kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. Another proverb says he craves and craves and craves and craves, but he'll do nothing <laughs> about the craving. He, I really want, I don't know, my lawn to be mowed. We have to do that where I live. You mow lawns. Do you do that here? I don't know. I really want my lawn to be mowed. It's a great desire to bring to the Lord. <laughs> Someone's going to have to mow that lawn for <laughs> that desire. Or the, the one who lacks sense in Proverbs 6.25, do not desire her beauty in your heart. Do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. That's the simpleton. Oh, eyelashes moving. Ah. Squirrel. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Uh, immediate gratification. Um, in contrast, by the way, to the Song of Solomon where uh, the covenant lovers express their desire for each other and how that desire for one another is beautiful in that context and how the mockery of that desire is foolish in this one. In the wilderness, Psalm 106.14, they had a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God the test in the desert, a wanton craving. Before they had satisfied their craving, while the food was still in their mouths, Psalm 78, 30, they were complaining. Immediate gratification. Got to keep it going. Got to keep this going. Got to <laughs> binge watch, uh, binge uh, stimulus. Okay, God, you got water from the rock. You gave us some food. Okay, but... Uh, the foolish soul uh, just desires themselves. <laughs> whoever, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. I'm going to go it alone. I don't need anybody. 
I can make it myself. I'm going to care for myself. Nobody else will. Isolates himself, seeks his own desire, and he breaks out against all sound judgment. Proverbs 18.1. Proverbs 19.2. Desire without knowledge is not good. I really want to, uh, what? Paint with pastels. Great desire. Uh, you're going to need some knowledge to do that. Uh, some type of learning to go with the desire. Surrender to it. Whoever makes haste with his feet misses his way. From the fruit of his mouth a man eats what is good, but the desire of the treacherous is for violence. The heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge, but the mouths of fools feed on folly. So foolish desires are all about preserving self. Defend, I'm defended. I'm adored. I'm respected. I'm honored. My way is preserved. <laughs> That's the desire uh, so, th so a couple will come into counseling with you and the, the one of them will say, in essence, my spouse has the problem. If you just fix my spouse, everything will be fine. That's just an indication of folly and you, that's in your opening sentences. Does that person know that? No. Is it possible that the spouse, spouse needs a lot of work? Yeah, it's possible. But for brokenness doesn't talk like that. Humble, wise brokenness that knows its own need of grace does not talk like that. So the foolish person is just trying to, if everything else will change, I can stay exactly how I am. And that's my commitment. So the desires, dreams. The scoffing soul just desires evil. It's a horrible verse. Proverbs 21.10, the, the content of what it says. The soul of the wicked desires evil. His neighbor finds no mercy in his eyes. There's just no empathy in the scoffer. No ability to see the common humanity of another human being. And delights in the fear that it provokes in another human being. There's no mercy in their eyes. The wise in the soul... They say stuff like, you said, Lord, seek my face. And my heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Psalm 27, 8. God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there's no water. In the day of trouble I seek the Lord. In the night my hand is stretched out without wearying. The desires of the wise have to do with the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. And so, uh, what are they seeking? As you're listening to someone, you're asking yourself, what questions are they asking? Are they asking any questions? Um, are the questions real? Or are they meant to direct me and teach me? Um, what are they seeking? What seems to be the dream, the desire, the want? that's surfacing here. When you get to knocking, that's frustrations. What you have is a, a closed door. You have un... you don't have answers. You, you have to live without answers. You have to live without healing. You have to live without things being fixed. You're in that moment 
where nothing's changing. The door is closed and you have to knock on it and it's not yet open. Uh, this is where the, um, Job's friends have a hard time. If, if, if they're focused on the rules and forget about the exceptions, they have a hard time with closed doors. Because what they do is blame the person. Well, the door must be closed because you haven't whatever. There's a partial truth in that, right? It very well could be that there's something uh, they're withholding and so the Lord is waiting, right? But we know from Job, uh, the door slammed in his face and all these things happened and God went silent as it related to Job and it was not because of anything Job did. And so we have to slow way down when we encounter someone, and that's all of us, isn't it? I mean, am I the only person that have all kinds of unfixed places in my life? <laughs> Unanswered prayers, uh, unanswered things, unhealed things, broken spots, closed doors, right? Uh, all of us have those, and so we slow way down when we hear that in someone else uh, before we're going to make judgments about whether they should just do this or that. So the wounded soul uh, can just say, just let me die. <clears throat> Several times in the Old Testament, wounded souls say, let me die. Uh, it could be like Elijah hiding in a cave full of self-pity pity and frightened, needing food and rest, thinking they're alone. The wounded soul, when they hit a frustration, uh, can sleep with sorrow. Do you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane that the Lord Jesus was in the garden praying and Peter, James, and John kept sleeping? Their spirit was willing, their flesh was weak. Do you know why Luke tells us? It's because they were sleeping because of sorrow. We can look it up. They're exhausted from pain. So sometimes the wounded soul encounters, when in their frustrations, uh, they sleep. Sometimes you're like Thomas. Unless I see the nails. Uh, just remember, um, that's not intellectual doubt. I just, I invite you to consider this. I, this isn't a, a college student who just read Marx or Nietzsche um, doubting the existence of God. Thomas doesn't doubt God's existence. Thomas doubts the resurrection of Jesus. Why? If we had the time, I'd point it out that he says it's repeated like three times, unless I see the, the scars of the nails, the nails in the hands, the nails. That's what's on his mind. We forget Thomas saw this stuff. He saw it all happen. His best friend one of his, the leader of their group denied he even knew Jesus. Another guy in their group sold him out, betrayed them. And remember this. What else do we know about Thomas? A little bit earlier when Lazarus died, word came and the rest of the disciples said, we can't go there. We'll die. And it was Thomas that said, then let's die with him. I commend to you 
This isn't some kind of distant, intellectual, hard-hearted doubt. This is a person who was all in and saw everything he imagined with real people that he loved fragmented and obliterated. And I think he's saying, I just can't go there again. I have to see. See what you make of it. The wounded soul comes up and knocks a closed door. And they're having to deal with the pain. The simplistic soul, they don't seek counsel. They forget his works. They do not seek his counsel. Psalm 106, 13. Uh, the foolish soul tries to bust the door down in their own self, or they walk away. They just go somewhere else. They're going to create their own way forward. And a scoffer is nowhere to be found. They're not going to hit a frustration with God and knock on the door and wait for him. They're going to ridicule it. See, there is no God. And they're going to point to the closed door in your life. They're going to point to the silence of God in your life. And they're going to zoom in right there because that's what evil does. And say, aha, where is God? You say you believe in him. Look at your life. Look at the pain in it. Where is your God? That's what a scoffer will do. So um, you can ask yourself a question when you wake up in the morning. What, is there any question on my heart? Is there any desire that I'm grappling with? Is there something I'm frustrated with? I wish was changed. I wish was different. I wish, I wish the door would be opened rather than closed. And then, uh, then there's DTR. Define the relationship. That's what our Lord Jesus is doing, you know. In Luke chapter 11, I tell you, ask, it will be given to you. Seek, you will find. Knock, it will be opened to you. Whoever asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. To the one who knocks, it will be open. Now he's going to deal with conceptions about God. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for a net, will give him a scorpion? So here you are. As you, as you wake up tomorrow morning, you can ask yourself, who do I think God is today? How am I thinking about God? With my closed doors and my desires and my questions. Is he, gonna, is he just waiting to do me harm? Is he going to give me a scorpion? Is he going to give me a snake? Or do I know him to be the father that Jesus is telling about? The good father who wants to do good to me? So when you're listening to someone, this is something you're paying attention to. What do you think about God? Is he good? Do they think he's going to do harm to them? And what do they think about themselves? Because Jesus says, if, uh, if you know how to give good gifts to your children... I'm sorry, he says, what father among you if his son asks for a fish? He's putting us in the position of children. He's just taught the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven. Do we know ourselves to be his children? Are we dearly loved? He will care for us. He will provide for us. Or are we feeling today we're orphaned? We're feeling today uh, he's going to do us harm. We're not dearly loved. We're not beloved by him. What's the nature of the, of the relationship today? Not as it ultimately is, but as we're experiencing it. That's what Jesus is doing. Uh, and then the promise. 
What promises am I trusting? Because all this is promise. Ask, it will be given. Seek, you will find. Knock, it will be open to you. The Lord's just put His whole reputation right on the line. He's not promised you money. He's not promised you status. He's not promised you immediate relief. He's not promised you to have all the answers in life. He's not promised you to have everything you've ever dreamed. He's not promised that nothing bad will happen to you or anybody you love. He's not promised to make life under the sun heaven. But He has promised that He will not give you a, a scorpion or a snake, that He will be good to you, and that if you bring what your questions are and you bring your desires to Him and you bring your frustrations to Him, uh, he will tend to them and care for them. And the door will be opened, you will find, and you will be given. Do I believe those promises today? No, I don't. The wounded soul, ah, how do I? Right? What promises am I trusting? I trust cynicism. That's what I trust today. Cynicism is... Uh, it stereotypes beauty. It, uh, it, it profiles goodness. Uh, it has a prejudice against uh, authenticity. Uh, nothing beautiful can be true. Come on, let's get real about life. To get real means let's talk about everything bad. Let's be as honest as we can about everything bad. That's what the cynic does. But the cynic has no capacity to be equally thorough in its descriptions of beauty and goodness and love and hope and everything true and right. What promises am I trusting today? As honestly as I can, am I tempted to trust promises other than the ones that are yes and amen in Jesus? Or are there somebody else's promise, uh, uh, eyelashes batting at me? in the midst of my closed doors and my unanswered desires and my unanswered questions and thinking that God is going to give me a snake or a scorpion, that woman's eyes sure look nice. And then locate the vine, Jesus. After all, it's Jesus who sang this to us. And it's the one, it's Jesus himself who's declaring it. It's the Spirit of God uh, through Jesus that's given us. The Father who's revealed to us through Jesus, Jesus who will pay for this on the cross, we ask ourselves, what loveliness is Jesus showing you? Or what is it about Jesus that seems veiled to you right now? And so you can use that personally, those of you who uh, have that, or you can use it as one tool to give to someone you're going to meet with, whether it's just mentoring or a bit of counsel or pastoral care, you could say, you see what you make of these questions, and when we get together, let's talk about these. And what you're doing is listening, slowing way down. What kinds of questions, what kinds of desires, what kinds of frustrations, how are they thinking about God and themselves? What promises are they trusting? And how are they related to Jesus? Um, and as you listen, you'll begin to get clues. Are they wounded? Are they, are they simplistic and naive and gullible, stubborn? Are they foolish, arrogant, defensive, angry, a fight waiting to happen, um, asking no questions, only going to teach you? Um, 
or are they a scoffer? Most of us aren't dealing with scoffers all the time. Uh, scoffers are hard to, to figure out. Scoffers are evil. But they exist. And so we're paying attention. Uh, and as we listen to uh, these things, we're gathering a sense from the Lord of who we might be dealing with in this area of their life. Remember, let's say you're talking to me about prayer. Uh, maybe I'm completely teachable. I'm just the wise soul. Uh, but then you start talking about money. Suddenly, I am the simpleton. I'm the fool. Right? Within the same person, depending on the slice of life we're dealing with, we are more or less wise, right? More, that's why there's no formula there's norms and exceptions and the presence of the Lord and we're setting these things in front of Him and we're looking to Him. This is the process He trusts with the cross and empty tomb, the ascension of Christ, uh, but no tried answers, no quick fixes. Um, the sage don't trust those remedies. That's why the book of Ecclesiastes is inductive. You don't know the point of Ecclesiastes until you get to chapter 12. You have to walk through 11 chapters of uncertainty and mess before he tells you what this thing is about. And it's like mentoring you. Because that's life. Here's an exercise for you as we close. Uh, read, uh, read a story, uh, fiction or nonfiction, about someone who's not a Christian. It can be a news story. And when they say something like, uh, a fool, where is God? I don't believe in God, whatever like that. Uh, notice your reactions. Do you stop reading? Do you get mad? And that's a good indicator. Because think about it. If we can't be patient when the person isn't in our presence, what are we going to do when they're in our presence? We encounter someone like that. So I, the simpleton, I see it in me, does not want that kind of complexity. And the fool just wants to get angry. So... I don't know, read, a, read an article by someone that you disagree with uh, and practice praying for the grace to slow down, to see who they are as a human being, and to try to discern, do they sound wounded, simplistic, foolish, right? In terms of simplistic, is it just they've never been taught? They just don't know. Or is it that they have been taught and they're stubborn, right? Practice that. Um, and then, you know, when you're getting where you can read something like that and be, you know, fairly uh, hospitable in your presence toward that, then give a human being a try. <laughs> uh, let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for 
Your grace to each one of us, the stamina for the afternoon. We thank you for your kind mercy, the way you slow down and pay attention to each one of us individually, the way you know our souls, the way you bring healing in a true and deep way. We ask that you would heal us, rescue us. Thank you for receiving our questions and desires and frustrations. Thank you for receiving our conceptions and misconceptions about you and ourselves. And thank you for every promise that you've given us in Christ. Thank you for paying for every false promise we've trusted. We thank you. In Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen. Copyright 2018 IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available on our app and at ibcd.org.